If you're just joining us this morning, uh, we're in the middle of a series where as we walk kind of down our own personal road towards Easter and towards what Christ did for us on that day, we're going to take a literal approach watching his journey as he journeyed towards the cross. As he walked towards this burden, um, we want to look at the people who interacted with him and whose lives were changed by him, the people that he spoke to on the way. And so today, I'm going to focus on a few pieces of scripture, some actually pretty well-known words, and, and even if, if you aren't necessarily a Christian, you've probably heard um, the, the dialogue I'm about to, to go into today. And as a matter of fact, a lot of you are probably bringing uh, context into it. And what I mean when I say that is sometimes when we've heard something before, we, we've heard it presented in a certain way. And, and so because of that, when we hear the same story or receive the same information again, we process it in similar terms and we go, oh, yeah, I kind of know this. And, and I'm not saying you'll do this, but I'm saying that we have a tendency to potentially check out possibly and to go, oh, I kind of get what he's, where he's going with this and, and, and I kind of know it. So, okay, good. I, I, I'll read the cues and I'll, you know, write the note. But, but I really want you guys to take a fresh look at where, what we're going to talk about today. It's so why I want to preface this by saying that, that this Bible is a lot like a kaleidoscope. I don't know if, have you guys ever looked through one of those? You look through a kaleidoscope and you see colors and shapes and then the moment you turn it, the moment you put it up to a different light, you see different colors and different shapes. It changes and it takes on new meaning. This Bible, you come to it at certain points in life and you read it and you bring, of course, the context of your heart and you get something from it and then you come to it later, perhaps even the same exact words and you look at it in a new light. Or from a new direction. And you find yourself going, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that was there. And it's funny because you'll come across a truth at one point, And it'll be utterly true. And then you come across another truth, just one layer deeper, that doesn't contradict, but only it builds what you already know. It's, it's amazing that this book can do that. And so to sort of illustrate that, I have a couple images with you. Just to get our minds in the right direction. Here's the first one. What do you see when you look at this picture? Oh, that's right. Some of you have already seen, yes, yes, some of you have already seen this. Depending on how your brain processes it, you may see two faces. Or you may now see a goblet, or you may have seen a goblet, and then you may see two faces. You process this information in a certain way, and your brain actually fills it in and says, okay, that's what's going on. But at a second look, you're able to ascertain another layer or another level of what may be happening in this imagery. This second picture is another great example of how our first impression of how our first impression might be a little off, right? You know, for those of us animal lovers, we go, oh, there's a llama. For those of us who are actually, you know, we like human beings, we go, why does that human have a llama's face? But of course, a little bit of a longer gaze at the photograph reveals what's going on. It gives our brain time to process. This last image, let's throw that up there. At first glance, you see two people sitting, but of course, you have a moment to think about it. You realize, oh, that's, that, that image is sideways. They're actually in a pool. Their legs are on the side. How often do we come to the truth sideways? How often has life knocked us on our side? And so the things we see and the people we encounter, we perceive them as sideways. And we come across things in life that because of our baggage or because of trauma or because of even just simple, simple plain experience, we look at them and we're perhaps for a moment or even longer unable to see what's really happening. And we come to a revelation that's just off, just slightly ever so off. 
that picture really depicts how sideways our interpretation can be until we begin to really process things objectively. So, now that we're in this open mindset, I want to carry you through a snapshot. I want you to sort of look at Christ's interaction with a blessed young man. So let's crack the book to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 17. I'll give you a moment to reach it. And then I'm going to carry you through all of the dialogue, and then we'll begin to go back and unpack a few specific things. So, here we are, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, this is speaking of Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And Jesus said to them, and, and said to him, they said to Jesus, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and replied, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I think that as we look at Jesus in this dialogue. He's really about to take off. He's done a lot on this particular leg of his journey. And, and a young man comes and falls at his feet and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It says a lot about Jesus that he was such a character that he attracted not only Jews but Gentiles. He attracted not only the poor but the rich. He attracted not only those who considered themselves to be saved but also those who thought they were wretched in the eyes of God. And even people who, as we've read in the account, who were perhaps even demonized found peace in the personage of Jesus. But it says a lot that a young man who, who has wealth and status and most likely education would say, Rabbi or teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And because of his education, he was most likely asking a question he knew the textbook answer to. But in other ways, I think he may, in fact, have been looking for security. I, I've heard it preached, of course, and, and maybe you have as well, that the young man in this scenario goes to Jesus asking a question he knows the answer to, having known he fulfilled that answer and kind of is looking for a pat on the shoulder or reassurance or, or whatever. And, and it's, it's, that is possible. But in other ways, it's, it's, it's very likely he was looking for security because only a little bit earlier, Peter, one of uh, Jesus' disciples, confesses him to be Christ. And so there's sort of, a, of an undertow and a brewing of trust that people have in Jesus and, and a, a perhaps could this be the Messiah and a, a maybe a, a, a forethought something just foreshadowing the future that, that people have faith in him and so perhaps this young man 
thinks, well, if he is the Messiah and I can get his approval, then I've, I've created an insurance policy for myself. Because if he turns out to really be the Messiah and I can get him to give me the stamp of approval right now, it, it, it might protect my future. So Jesus kind of plays into this. I love how the young man uh, addresses Jesus as good teacher. And rather than say something too contradictory, obviously he does say, why do you call me good? Which, you know, obviously Jesus is good and he knows that. But Jesus plays into that and gives him a teacher's answer. He says, you know the commandments. And as a teacher, he recites them. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Jesus knew that this was the answer to the question, as all good Jewish boys would know. These both, the young man and Jesus, were, were good Jewish boys because these commands were held holy by their people, given from God to Moses, from Moses to the people, and then taught from the time that they would have been young. I love what my grandfather used to say. Um, I, I'm fortunate to have had a, a really great grandfather by my grandmother's marriage after my uh, grandfather by blood was out of the picture. I, I had this great crotchety old Jewish grandfather. And, uh, and, and he, he, knew, uh, he knew when I was pursuing, uh, you know, becoming a pastor that I was inevitably going to ask him, you know, what do you think about Jesus? And he was, he was really cool. Uh, one time we were playing pool. So after my grandmother had passed and I went up and we, we were playing pool and we were talking and he goes, so working for the church, how's that going for you? And I said, it's really cool. It's really good. And, you know, I love it. It's done a lot for me. And, you know, what, you know Grandpa, what, what do you think about the church? And, and you know, what do you... What do you think about that? You know, I'm trying to subtly sort of address the fact that I'm kind of curious about his faith because when you're young, you're little, you never really ask, but then when you grow up, you find yourself wondering, oh, what is, what is my father, what is my mother, what does my grandfather think about this faith that I have or that they have? And without a single, just drop of a hat, he hits the cue or he cues up the ball, knocks it in, and he, he just looks up and immediately he gives me this textbook answer that tells me he's had that question before. And he says, look, <clears throat> I got no problem with Jesus. He's one of our boys that made good. <laughs> what do you say to that? I was, I was ill-equipped. I was ill-equipped to say anything. And Jesus was one of them because he did know the answers. And surely the young man who came to him did as well. So he indulges and he says, you know the commandments. But this young man, I speculate, he might have been like many of us in this room. He does know the answers here. He may have been a good Bible study buddy. But I I suspect that for some of you, the answers aren't quite enough and you crave to know more. Like him, like me, I believe that Jesus has more for us than formulaic answers. And I know that it's hard to move something from your mental understanding to your physical understanding and from there feel it in your heart. Because how many of us have struggled through a scenario and then in fact prayed, received our forgiveness, but not felt forgiven? I'm not going to say that this young man wasn't boasting, but I think it's equally as likely that he was looking for reassurance. So this young man responds, right? He says, I have kept these since my youth. Now, here's where that context I was talking about gets dangerous. If we assume, based on what we don't know, that this young man was, in fact, arrogantly asserting his holiness, that he was tooting his own horn with a note of false humility, then, yeah, he's boasting. He lacks humility. But as we saw in the pictures that I put up earlier, we can quickly impose a meaning on what we don't know. And I don't know whether or not he was being boastful. 
But it is just as likely he was genuinely worried about his salvation and needed reassurance, as many of us do. We wonder how much God will tolerate our humanity. And we breathe in the breath of life in the morning, and then throughout the day we sort of cry out for God's touch and for his presence. And we wonder, well, have I done enough? And, and what next can I do? And, and it's good to have a relationship with Jesus that is constantly calling us to the carpet and bringing out greater levels of obedience and love. But it is equally good that in those moments of doubt, we seek an answer from the good teacher and we seek his reassurance. Jesus offers salvation, but we cannot guarantee it for ourselves, save but accept it from him. And in faith, we ask for more faith, and in belief, we ask for help with our unbelief. It's likely that this young man was perhaps in that situation. If we change the angle, we look at him. Perhaps he was worried of heart. I know for a fact that when I ask God in my journaling or in my praying, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's not usually because I feel like I've already done that, right? When I ask that question, it's not because I know the answer. I mean, and there's, there's questions we get asked on a regular basis that, you know, we know there's a question behind the question. Do I look fat in this is one of them. <laughs> and my wife always says, no, you don't. See that? Don't go elbowing your husbands. I was talking about myself. Um, I love Jesus' response to him. After he says, and let me get back to the text. After he says, these things I have kept. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. In that moment is the crux of almost half of scripture, that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I almost want to put a period there, save for the fact he does go on. And he tells him, he gives him this, this answer. He says, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Let me give you some personal framework here. Um, I, I, I was a young worship leader, 2012. I'm in Southern California, and I'm working for this church, and it's Easter Sunday, and I've just finished up. We were a one-service church. I just finished up our worship service. I'm down at the bottom, you know, kind of where this actually, probably right about here, would be in that building. And, you know, I've finished talking with people and hanging out, and I see this beautiful young firecracker named Tawny come in. <laughs> she comes in the back door, and... She has what I can now see is bags full of candy. And she skips across the room and comes skipping down the aisle. And I looked at her and I loved her. And I said internally, this is the day I propose. And it's weird because in hindsight, she tells me the story and she goes, I looked at you and I knew. I was like, he's going to propose to me today. <laughs> And I'm like, what kind of look is that? Because I obviously, hopefully, will never use that look again in my life. <laughs> but I want to be careful. If my face communicates that much, what else am I saying that I perhaps should not say? It's just so funny. I, I looked at her, and I loved her. And if you know me, I tend to be the serious melancholy type. I saw this joy in her that was vibrant and different 
And being the deep, thoughtful person I was, I just said, yeah, I'm going to marry her today. So uh, long story short, because I didn't really have a plan, I went to pick and save, and I got, a bunch of pl- I, I got a bunch of plastic eggs, and I went back, and, uh, and I gave her a bunch of plastic eggs. I said, these are for you, open them, and she, of course, thought there was candy in them, and there was candy in a few, and then pennies in some other ones, and I put a bug in another, and then by the time she was thoroughly fed up with it, I said, there's one more, and as she turned to get it from me, I was on my knee, and I gave her the egg, and she opened it, and... It was great. It was, real, it was really good with no planning. It was really good with no planning. Right. And there was another bug in it, and that was me, and she stuck with me. Okay. Let me tell you one, one more story. There was a point in my life where I was kind of coming into myself as a, as a man, and I began to grow incredibly aggressive because up until a certain point in my life, I didn't really have healthy boundaries with people. And I couldn't really draw lines in the sand and say, don't cross this or we'll be done. And so when the time came for me to actually do that, I started to draw those lines and it was really healthy. And then in common human fashion, I began to draw them quickly and with people who didn't necessarily deserve to have those lines drawn. I became the kind of person who would just kiss you off if you weren't worth my time. If you stepped on my toes too much, I would be done. And thank goodness there was a realization that came with that. I sat down with a teacher and we were going through a lesson and, and he said to me, you know, Kyle, he didn't know what he was speaking into, but he said, you know, Kyle, the most damning thing you can say to someone is they just don't know. And wash your hands of them and be done. And he was, of course, talking about some other situation, some other scenario. But I realized, wow, wow, these healthy boundaries have become unhealthy. And I have rigidly created a structure in which I am cutting people out of my life. And I'm not saying that we need to overextend ourselves. As a matter of fact, one of the things that Pastor Terry said in a recent message that I have made really part of how I judge situations. He said that needs plus opportunities or resources don't necessarily equal God's will. So I'm not saying we're meant to save everyone we see, but certainly we are meant to extend love, even in small fashion, for those that we might consider unlovable. What does Jesus do with this young man? Regardless of whether he's being boastful, regardless of whether he truly is afraid and worried and needs comfort, Jesus, in the fashion of a loving God, looks at him, loves him, and then gives him the truth. I love that illustration. Because for God so loved the world that he gave his son... And God loved Lazarus, as we heard last week, so he wept. And God loved Adam and Eve, so despite their sin, he clothed them. And God loved David and blessed his kingdom. And God loved Solomon and made it wise. And God loved you. And he died. And he rose again. And he's yet to come and return and make it undeniably known. But it is the love of God that motivates him to interact with man. It is love that motivates the heart of God to interact with us. I want to continue focusing on Jesus' words here. So I'm going to move back to this conversation in verses 23 if you want to join me there. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. 
And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? I I love that because the word amazed, it's kind of like awestruck, which sounds a little bit like dumbfounded, speechless. Now, why would they have been dumbfounded or speechless? See, you and I, we're in a culture right now where we understand the premise, oh, the poorer you are, well, you're probably holier. You know, we think of people like Mother Teresa and other saints who have, through hardship, become, uh, developed incredible character and strength internally, right? And then, of course, we think of rich people and we say, oh, well, they've got their needs met and they're just probably greedy and they're probably, oh, they've got too much going on and oh, they have so much they don't need. And so we sort of characterize them through the context of our jealousy as being less spiritual than the holy poor person. But listen, being a poor person does not make you any more of a saint than being rich makes you a sinner and vice versa, right? But in this day and age, it was the complete opposite. You see, for a a person in in, uh, Judea at this time, right, uh, a rich person was considered highly favored by God. You look at the story of Job and you're just like, wow, God really does love him because look at how he's blessed him. And as a matter of fact, you see it all throughout the Old Testament, you know, that when people, when, when God's holy people were, were, were following with what God would have them do, they were blessed and they overtook their enemies and they conquered territories and, and, and it, was, it was theirs. The inheritance was theirs. The promised land was theirs. But when they messed up, when they walked away from God, when they abandoned God and engaged in idolatry and child sacrifice and all these things, God would become enraged and he would bless their enemies to overtake them. So the context that his disciples are so amazed by is the fact that Jesus is literally saying, man, it's going to be really hard for somebody so blessed by God to be blessed by God and inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so amazed is a pretty good term. They're going, what? What? And God says, no, listen, listen, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of heaven. Their perception, like I spoke of earlier, the context they processed Jesus' words through was that prosperity equaled favor. And so they couldn't possibly comprehend why it wouldn't in this scenario. Um, Before you check out, because by your standards, maybe you are so poor. And I don't mean to not validate that. I grew up very challenged financially. And I understand that there are tensions and insecurities. And that it's hard, and you don't know maybe where the next paycheck is coming from. Before you categorize yourself as being in poverty, I, I want you to know that compared to Jesus, we are rich people. And regardless of the fact that, yes, time is different now, and standards have been adjusted, and there's running water, and so on and so forth, there's still a high percentage of this world that lives in the same standards Jesus did, and even worse at that. Let us not forget that outside of our country, There are people who would look at us the same way that the Jews in this scenario would have looked at the rich young ruler. They would say, wow, God's favor is on them. Wow, they must be doing it right. Wow, and you and I know the truth because we look at somebody else and say, wow, they're totally favored by God. And me, me, oh my, I'm just trying to dredge through life, make my car payment. It's perhaps true that other people would see us as favored in the same way that the disciples looked at the blessed young man. So Jesus drops this bomb and he says, it's going to be really, really hard for a person of wealth to access the kingdom of God. He sees their shock and continues. He clarifies that, quite frankly, it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. I think what he means there is, you know, it's pretty hard for anyone. 
Exceedingly astonished, they asked, who can be saved? And of course, what they're all thinking is, if not a rich man, then who? Who can, they, who can be saved sounds a lot like, what must I do? And suddenly, regardless of the fact that there's a blessed young man coming and going, the disciples themselves find themselves asking the same question. Well, who can be saved? Really, the internal dialogue for them there is, what do I got to do? Because suddenly, they're feeling not so secure anymore. Jesus responds, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. I love that. Let me just return to the text and read that so it sinks in. And they were exceedingly astonished and asked him, said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter speaks up. Peter begins to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. I could almost hear his voice shake. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake, and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. I love how the Bible continues to turn everything upside down. And, and, Jesus' promise to his disciples, I love how it, it covers all this ground. Like, hey, don't worry about it. You're going to have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and brothers and lands. Because in reality, Jesus' perspective is as he adds people to the kingdom of God, our family increases exponentially. You know, I go into the conference room and I look at pictures of people who are baptized and I go, another brother in my family, another sister in my family, another mother. Lands increase. When your gain happens, it's my gain because... I am glad that God has blessed you and we are in the same family under the inheritance of God, right? But then Jesus kind of, I, I hate to say this term, he puts a little poop in the cake and he says, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. I love that God doesn't just say, they don't know. Why waste my breath? He gives them the truth in love. And he speaks it in a way that makes it utterly known that he loves them. We're in the same state as the rich young man, many of us. And anyone could look at us and assume God is blessing us and we have it all together. But in reality, we could be missing the kingdom by the mile. And now is, is not a time for false humility, for us to work through the laws and try to find our reassurance in our good deeds. It's, it's not the time for that, especially with Easter so near, with the sacrifice of Jesus in its remembrance drawing closer and closer to us. Now, and now is really the time to press into the fact that regardless of knowing the commands, even greater is the love of God for us. That which makes the impossible possible and the unworthy worthy. Um, I want to talk about my own ignorance for a second. When I was going for my pastoral license, which involved quite a rigorous test by my standards, but then again, I'm not very smart, so made it a little bit hard. They asked me these awesome questions, and everything about them re related either to biblical knowledge or uh, sort of a spiritual understanding of the doctrine that we teach here at Creekside and in our denomination. And towards the end, there are these questions, and they said, well, explain security of the believer. 
sanctification, explain this and that. And, and in my trademark charming ignorance at the time, I didn't realize they were more or less asking me, hey, are you on board with our doctrine? Are you going to preach something we don't believe in? If so, you know, they were just trying to help me understand. And I, I took it literally. It says explain security to the believer. And I thought, well, I'm a believer and I, I'm secure, but I'm not secure because I think I've done anything right. So then I immediately blissfully and ignorantly say, <clears throat> well, what they're asking is, can you lose your salvation, right? Probably what this young man was asking. Hey, I've done it. I've done it right. Is there any way I could get lost in this? Is there any way my salvation could go out? The my response is this. I go, <clears throat> in order to understand the security of us and our salvation as believers, we have to instead look not at ourselves and our security, but literally God's love for us. And as we see in 1 Peter 1.20, it says that God chose him meaning Jesus, as your ransom long before the world began, but he has now revealed him in these last days. So before the foundation of the earth, before the ocean was poured, and before God was standing over it, bringing up land and life and light, Jesus was by his side, aware of the fact that all of us creepy crawlies were going to need help. And it's on that that I build my security, not really on anything else. And then later on, Ephesians 1, 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And so I say, in order to understand security of the believer, we must instead look at what God has done before the creation of the world rather than what we do in response on the world. Now, of course, obedience is an incredibly necessary piece of the puzzle. God cannot save us if we do not participate in salvation. And you are called in accepting salvation to become more and more a son or daughter of God, more and more obedient and more and more changed by his love to not only love others, but love him. But remember that your security comes from a God who looks at you and loves you. And doesn't say, they just don't know. Perhaps this morning you don't know the first thing about Jesus or the book, right? Maybe you came though because you felt in your soul the fragile feeling of not being assured, not being secure. Maybe you're counting on deeds to save you. You're adding up all of the points and you're saying, all of these I've kept since I was young. Maybe you're poor, rich, a Quaker baker or a candlestick maker. I don't know who you are, but God looks at you and loves you, and he's willing, willing in love to challenge you, willing in love to speak to you, willing in love to come to you, willing in love to dwell in you, and willing in love to be with you. And when that moment comes, when you find out whether you've inherited the kingdom of life, build your security on the fact that you met with God, you looked back, you loved him, and you responded. 